thinking out loud about some things that I've been thinking about. And, um, so last Friday or this, you know, just a couple of days ago, I did my, uh, <clears throat> freeology Friday with Derek Day. And, uh, we talked about some stuff. And then we talked a little bit after and it just got me thinking, uh, in a really great way, in an empowering way about my life and just life in general <clears throat> and how do we manifest a life worth living, manifest the life that we want. And uh, we, we were talking about prayer and sort of the old version of prayer that we used to follow when we were in Christianity, the traditional model of petitioning uh, a deity in the sky that is taking the a form of an archetype of a king, of a monarch ruler who's ruling and reigning over the universe and then has to decide, is ruling and reigning over our individual lives and has to decide whether or not our petitions will be granted. And so the old form of prayer, the old type of prayer, was always this petitionary type of prayer that left you at effect, not at cause, that left you really uh, giving away your power in many cases over your own life, over your own decisions, over your own uh, ability to create, manifest the life that you want to the decision of this monarch or this God in the sky. And we got to talking about that versus like talking about an empowered version where we understand the divine light, the divine spark is within us. And that empowers us then in a lot of ways to create, influence, and change the life that we want. And I've just been thinking about that for the last couple of days. It's been kind of a crazy weekend. I wanted to spend more time getting ready for this uh, so I could be really putting out some quality content. And I just, it's, it's just been crazy. It's been a weird weekend. And so for various different reasons, I wasn't able to do that. So that's why I said at the beginning, if you're just jumping on, that I'm going to sort of word vomit on you or just think out loud because I, I was thinking along these lines as I had time yesterday and the personal application of those things, the principles that uh, Derek and I were talking about, things that we both used in our lives but maybe haven't used it as consciously or as powerfully as we could have, or I'll speak for myself. I, I realize I haven't been using it as consciously or as powerfully as I could have to – manifest the life that I want to live. And so I got to thinking about some of the essential components of being able to do this. And then I read something last night, and this isn't directed at anybody. Those of you that have been watching know that I've been wrestling with these things for quite some time and talking about it. And I like to hear your ideas as well. And keep in mind, while I'm sharing, uh, I am just sort of thinking out loud, so I'm not assuming that I'm right um, and I love to hear your, your feedback on it. I do go back and read the comments, even though I haven't been commenting. I've been staying off of social media. Uh, and it's been really good. <laughs> it's been really good. Not that I don't miss connecting with a lot of you, but just, um, it's just been good for me for this season. So anyway, I was reading this thing last night and in this text, it was not a text message, but what I was reading. The author was putting forth this idea that 
we needed to completely let go of our beliefs. And you hear this a lot in spiritual circles today, at least I do. This idea that the only thing that exists is the present moment. The only thing that exists is the present moment. And that we have to live in the present moment. And that what prevents us from living in the present moment is the busyness of our minds. And that the goal, the spiritual goal, the objective is to let go of the thinking mind and just realize that you are presence, that you are the I am presence, that you're the witness behind the thinker, that you are not the thinker, that kind of stuff. And those are all good principles. They're principles that we use in uh, psychotherapy a lot, but we call it mindfulness, just being able to be mindful and be in the present moment. And certainly there's a recognition there that our beliefs can cause suffering for us. But this person was saying that essentially the problem with humanity at this level of our evolution or existence is beliefs in and of themselves, beliefs that we basically update our beliefs. We get frustrated or we suffer from our beliefs that we have. So we let go of those old beliefs that are causing us suffering and we update our beliefs and that we're constantly just exchanging one set of beliefs for another set of beliefs and that we needed to realize that all beliefs were basically illusions, that all beliefs were illusions. And we needed to wake up to the fact that the only place the divine is present is in the present moment. Now, I don't know if I'm the only one, but when I read stuff like that or I hear stuff like that, I'm, I'm wondering, can you hear or see the irony that's in that? Can you hear or see the irony that's in that? Because here's what's ironic about it. The belief that beliefs are the problem is in and of itself a belief. The belief that we need to let go of beliefs and just exist as an I am presence in the present moment is also a belief. So when you think about that, I mean, am I wrong? If I'm wrong, you know, tell me how I'm wrong. The belief that the thought that that mind is the problem and I need to identify with the witnesser behind the mind is a product of my mind. <laughs> Do you, you see the irony in that? The thought that I have to be in the present moment is a thought. And to let go of, in order to be in the present moment, I have to let go of my thoughts is a thought. It's kind of like uh, in the old model, some of you might remember this in, uh, you know, especially charismatic Christianity, the whole spirit, soul, and body teaching, right? That your spirit is perfected. I remember hearing Andrew Womack say, you know, you're one third wall to wall God. And then your soul is really where your problem is. That's your mind, will, and emotions. And you need to line up your soul with your spirit and you use the word of God. They would use Hebrews 4.12 to teach this. I mean, they, they would get volumes of books out of one verse in the Bible, Hebrews 4.12, to distinguish between the spirit and the soul. For those of you who don't know what it says, it says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, thought and intention. And so they would say you need to go to the word of God and take the word of God 
and use that to separate the soul and the spirit, to identify the spirit, because under this belief system, the soul is attached to the flesh, and the soul is corrupt. It's the part of you that is corrupt. Um, but the irony of that is, and the way they would define soul, again, is mind, thought, will, and emotion. Now, remember, that's totally corrupt, and you got to connect with your spirit. So mind, will, and emotion doesn't exist in spirit. Mind, will, and emotion exists in the soul, they would say. Well, in order to use the word of God, I've got to use my mind. <laughs> and in order to align myself with my spirit or whatever, I would have to use my will. And then we just really didn't talk much about emotions. Emotions were just bad all the way around. I'm not moved by what I feel. Not moved by what I see, you know, my emotions are lying to me. Got to win the battlefield for my mind, all that stuff. But the irony in that is, is that they would tell us that our soul is corrupted, but yet we would have to use that corrupted soul in order to align with the, align with the spirit. Because the way you did it, you, you had to use your mind, will, and emotions. You couldn't use your spirit to do it, which is the part of you that's, you know, according to uh, Andrew Womack, wall-to-wall God, whatever. So there was irony there. And I, and I find the same kind of irony in this concept that beliefs are bad. If beliefs are bad, then knowledge is bad. And if knowledge is bad, then what are you doing writing books or putting out um, content on social media or whatever? Because you're peddling ideas and beliefs. Only in this case, you're peddling an idea and a belief that ideas and beliefs are bad, while at the same time, you're putting forth an idea and a belief. (laughs) And I'm not trying to, you know, cast shade on anybody. I'm just, that's how I'm processing and thinking about this stuff right now. And what's interesting is that a lot of this stuff, and again, I'm, I'm in favor of, you know, mindfulness being in the present moment, not identifying yourself with thoughts and ideas and opinions and beliefs, that's a little bit different than, oh, this is all bad and this is a problem. We just need to let this stuff go. Um, <clears throat> it's a lot more nuanced than that. I think one of the things that has frustrated me as a, as a thinker and as someone who really wants to find things that are working for people that will help people, that people can apply to their lives to improve their lives and make them better or to connect with the divine or experience the divine that's within themselves, one of the problems that I see is that a lot of this stuff is very nuanced. And if we don't go into the nuances of these things, we're leading people down a path that's going to do the exact opposite. Instead of really empowering them to build the life that they want, or instead of empowering them to manifest the divine nature that is within them in their lives, we're actually directing them down a path, I think, that leads them away from that. And that's why I'm harping on this stuff, because we put it out there very simplistically without all the nuances to it. And it's a very nuanced thing, because at the end of the day, we are um, meaning makers. (laughs) I mean, if you want to get down to what a belief is, a belief is the meaning that you hold about whatever it is, the context of that meaning. So in other words, I have beliefs about myself. Those are the meanings that I attach to myself and that creates my self-concept. I have beliefs about 
other people in general. That's the meaning that I give to my relationships with other human beings. So belief and meaning is very, very closely tied. And we are meaning makers. And rather than escaping that and trying to get away from that, I think we should be embracing that. And I think one of the differences is, is that being a Westerner, I am more influenced. And what seems more reasonable and makes more sense to me is Western ideas and things that are rooted in Western philosophy versus Eastern ideas and things that are rooted in Eastern philosophy. Remember, all of these spiritual practices, all of this spiritual advice is rooted in a worldview, in a philosophical worldview. And in the East, really, in Buddhism and a lot of Hinduism and stuff, the idea was that this world is full of suffering. The idea was that we're already living in hell, whereas in Western Christianity, we're going to, we exist in this world as sort of a test, I guess, where, you know, we have to get the right beliefs. We have to get, get the right faith, whatever this is within, you know, Christianity, evangelical Christianity, what it's become. And then when we die, we'll go to heaven if we get it right. Or if we get it wrong, depending on your denomination, that determines what the wrong thing is. You're not baptized, not baptized correctly didn't say the sinner's prayer, didn't believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, didn't get your history a lesson correct, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, or it could be more complex than that. It could be uh, morality could be tied in with that. You know, there are groups that believed that if you died with any unconfessed sin, that you might go to hell. Or if you committed sort of those uh, mortal sins, that you might find yourself in hell. So th- those are kind of the Western ideas, Western religion. In Eastern religion, the idea really is, is that you are in hell right now and you keep recycling. You keep, you, you get, you're stuck on the wheel of death and rebirth. And remember, particularly in ancient cultures, life was not a bed of roses by any means. That to, to a large degree, they were right. Because life was so horrible. But now if you look at the East, the idea is, is that you're recycling into this planet. You're stuck on this wheel of death and rebirth. And you have this idea of karma that whatever you did in previous lives is the karma, the cause of what you're going to experience in this life that you're born into or the next life that you're born into. In which case, Whatever your lot in life, that was your karma. And I've even had conversations with people, friends of mine, people that I respect, highly respect, uh, when I try to point out these philosophical differences. And I'll hear them say things like, uh, when we get too involved with social issues or we get too involved with uh, trying to, even things like healing, trying to bring healing to people, well, maybe that's not their karma in this life. And so if we get too involved with stuff, we're messing with their karma. Now, I've never been to India. I've never, you know, sat down at length and had long conversations with people who come from that worldview and that philosophy. I mean, I have had some connection with people that were Hindu and had conversations, but not in depth. So, that's why my caveat at the beginning, but it's my understanding that, 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 you know, what I'm saying may not be right. 
but it's my understanding you go to those places and there really is a caste system. And that caste system in their society, you have the haves and the have-nots. And the idea is that the haves had some kind of superior virtue in their past life that gave them the karma to be born as haves with less suffering. And the have-nots had some kind of more horrible karma in a past life that causes them to have an unpleasant experience in this life. And so they're working out and working through their karma because the idea is as you work out and work through your karma, then you are freeing yourself gradually from this world that we live in so that you can get off of the wheel of reincarnation and experience union with God or union with all that is. And you can do that through your successive lives, but, you know, karma is a tricky thing because you can also make your karma worse in lives. And so the spiritual practices, the salvation, remember, hell was the earth. So the spiritual practice to get you out of that hell was to accelerate the process by trying to reach what they call samadhi in this life. So a lot of the yoga practices, if you really look at them, the practices of yoga from the East, there was a lot of aestheticism. Uh, yogis might stand in one position for really long periods of time to experience pain. Uh, they may fast. There's a whole group of, of philosophers or, or yogi practitioners, let's just put it that way, yoga practitioners, yogis, where abstinence from sexuality is definitely the goal. Because one of the things that would drag you back into this earth was your attachments. And so your attachments from materialism, your attachments from, uh, uh, your attachments to materialism might pull you back in. But certainly your desires, your attachment to those desires, your attachment to those ideas, all this stuff was the byproduct of karma that would prevent you from escaping this wheel of birth, death, and rebirth. And so a lot of the Zen practices, a lot of this idea that we create our own suffering by our mental concepts and a lot of the meditation practices are designed to completely escape this world because this world is hell, completely escape it, and to escape consciousness itself, to get out of consciousness, consciousness itself to experience oneness with God. So then this stuff gets exported to us now as Westerners in a time when life is probably as comfortable for human beings as it's ever been. You know, contrary to the Christian idea that things are getting worse and worse, in actuality, things are progressively seem to be improving. I used to do this teaching when I would try to debunk the latest Bible prophecy stuff that was coming out because the idea in the Bible prophecy stuff is that things just keep getting worse and worse. And so statistically, I would have this teaching where statistically I would look at we have less famine today, we have less war today, we have less disease today. 
We have less suffering today because of all these modern advancements. So you're taking these ancient practices based on an ancient belief system that you keep recycling into this hell of earth, and then we just take the practice and the surface ideas and export them to Western people who are living a better existence than they were in the ancient world. And we cannot help but filter those beliefs and filter those ideas through our subconscious and unconscious Western presuppositions that we were raised in. And by so doing, we create distortions. Now, I hope all that makes sense. And when we create distortions for ourselves, more than likely, we're not going to arrive at whatever goal that we're trying to arrive at. And so one thing that I've noticed that we end up doing in both in, 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 let me back up. Or we might take a new philosophy that we're not trying to just get out of this being human altogether, but we're trying to go to the next level of human evolution. And I do think there's some truth to that, but again, I think it's very, very nuanced. And so we create these ideas of a utopia that maybe isn't heaven, but maybe it's a higher density or a higher realm or a fifth uh, dimension that we're moving into or a fourth density or whatever that we're moving into. These are just the same concepts that we had in Christianity about heaven, that it's still built on a presupposition that we are flawed, that we are existing in a some sort of a realm that isn't perfect or whatever. But the goal is to escape this one to get to the next one because the next one's going to be so much more heavenly. And it's so idealistic, right? When Whenever I hear teachings on this, it's like we're just trying to get to the next utopia. So we're just using a different means of salvation to get to the next utopia. So it's sort of a gospel, a different gospel, presented. You understand what I'm saying by that? So in Christianity, we wanted to get out of here. We didn't want to go to hell. We wanted to go to heaven. And our, our pathway there was through Jesus. But it's still trying to escape this reality that we're in right now rather than developing ourselves, rather than fully engaging in it and living in it and developing ourselves while we're here. Eastern model, you're trying to escape desire because desire creates suffering. And you're trying to get off the wheel of birth, death, and rebirth. With some spiritual teachings now, you're just trying to get to that utopian state, which is in the fifth dimension or uh, higher, or in the fourth density and higher. Now, again, some of these things may be true, but let's be honest, gang. We have no more evidence for these things than we do anything else. A channeled work, all a channeled work is, and I'm not trying to, you know, dump on anybody's parade here. I'm really not or pissing anybody's Cheerios here. I'm just trying to, you know, your Sunday morning breakfast. I'm just trying to think these things through, honestly, with integrity, think these things through. So if you want to come to proof, like what proof did we have that hell existed? Those of us that used to believe in hell or those people who do believe that there is a hell 
uh, eternal place of eternal conscious torment that you go to after this life. What evidence did we have of that? Well, the evidence we had of that was scripture. And what was scripture? Scripture was supposed to be inspired writings, writings that were coming under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now we have channeled works, right, that are telling us these things. We have channeled works that are telling us these things. They're, in a lot of cases, they're not even inspired or claim to be inspired by God. We're using a more modern paradigm. They're inspired by aliens who've reached a higher level of density or evolution. So we're either taking the word on paper in our Bible that was supposedly inspired by God himself through human vessels, channeled, if you will, or we're taking the word of people who channeled works inspired by aliens. And then we want to argue about this stuff and get upset about this stuff. But what proof, what evidence, what experiential knowledge and evidence do we have of these things? Now, we may have had certain experiences. I know I certainly have uh, had experiences that have given me um, sort of an experiential knowledge of some of these things, but I don't want to take my subjective experiences. This is why I don't talk about them a lot because I don't want to take my subjective experiences and put them forth as though it is some law or some way of life that says, this is how things are for sure. And you need to follow this because at the end of the day, (laughs) It's subjective. It's my subjective experience. And so then I can sit with someone else. I have a lot of Christian friends who have very, very powerful subjective mystical experiences that would be different than some of my mystical experiences that would teach various different things. And we can sit down, we can argue and debate these things. But at the end of the day, we both only have our subjective experiences. So my concern is that we start building on another shaky foundation, that it's just religion redressed. And here's the one thing they all have in common. They're trying to escape from this life. They're trying to escape from the problems of this life. Now, they may be engaging problems based on their philosophical underpinnings, and if that's working for them, great. (laughs) But again, that doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody or be right in every situation. So let's contrast. So I started this out by saying, you know, I read something. If you're jumping on late, I read something last night about, you know, how bad beliefs are. That beliefs are um, the problem. That we just update beliefs and exchange beliefs and and I said that in and of itself is a belief. So, again, you're trying to, the irony there is you're trying to escape from something that you really can't, that, that, that your very attempt to communicate it and escape from it is creating the very thing that you're saying is the problem, which is another belief, another idea, another concept. But, again, there's a lot of this influence of spiritual teachings that come from Eastern philosophies detached from their philosophies, and then the practice is trying to be put into Western contexts. So let's step back a minute and look at some Western ideas and how these might be different. 
in John's gospel. And, and this, if, if there is, that there are things that I find still to be anchors for me and that I believe to be true from the Bible and from the scriptures. In John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. And all things were made by him and without him nothing was made that has been made. And <clears throat> so on in the first three or four verses there. But Logos, in the beginning was the Logos. We have to go back, or the word, that's what that word, sorry, skipping ahead for people that may not know this. In the beginning was the word, the word in the Greek. For the word, word, did you catch all that, is Logos. And to understand Logos, we can't just turn to, you know, our Strong's Dictionary or our Vine's Dictionary. We really have to go back and look at what was the philosophical ideas of the time in which the text is being written about the Logos. And so the idea of the Logos is the one of the ways it could be translated. It could be translated as idea. Um, or it could also be translated as the plan. But in essence, what John is saying and what most Western philosophers believed was that in the beginning there was consciousness or mind. In the beginning was mind. And that out of mind came everything that we see. Out of consciousness, out of ideas, or you could say out of beliefs. So, in other words, from this perspective, the foundation of everything that we see is mind. And if I understand Plato correctly <clears throat> and Platonic thinking, the world of mind, what this brother was calling the world of beliefs, beliefs, we need to get rid of those. We need to escape that. We need to escape mind. We need to escape meaning. What John is saying and what Plato is saying is that mind is the foundation of everything. And what Plato was saying was that the world of mind is more timeless and eternal and real than the world of the material world. And from this, then came Plato's idea of forms, that forms exist in the Logos. They exist in the world of mind, in the world of consciousness. And that matter, the material world, and our physical lives, and the lives that we're living, conforms itself to the power of the idea. That this material physical world is the byproduct of consciousness. It's the byproduct of meaning. It's the byproduct of thought. It's the byproduct of idea. And that that is where the illusion lies. That's where the illusion lies. There is no doubt that our life is, that everything in this life is constantly changing. That it's constantly transitory that it's constantly in flux, that it will all pass away. There's no denying that. And I'm not denying that we can identify with thoughts and beliefs that are going to be harmful for us and create suffering, and that we need to practice being present 
and being present in the moment and being mindful in the moment that we are. See, this is where I think it gets nuanced. Those are important practices. Those are very helpful practices. Those can be very healing practices. But they're simply the instruments and the tools that we're using. They are not the end goal or the thing in and of itself. Does that make sense? So in Plato's idea, you have the realm of ideas, what we might call today archetypes, that exist in this matrix of the Logos that gives shape them. He he would call these forms, and these forms would then give shape to things in the material world, but there was so much distortion in our consciousness and so much distortion in the material world that we could never, you could never experience in this world the perfect form. You can only experience the imperfect shape. And this is where a lot of the ideas, at least as far as I understand it, again, I'm not a philosopher, but the way I understand it, this is where the idea that we get this idea in Western culture about perfection. That So the example that's classically used is that Plato had the perfect triangle. There are triangles. I could draw a triangle, and it may be a perfectly formed triangle or not. Chances are if I just take a piece of paper and draw a triangle, those angles aren't going to be exactly the same. Those lines aren't going to be exactly the same length and so on. But in the realm of form, there is the idea of the perfect triangle. And that exists in this, it's sort of in, in the heavenly places, if you will, to, to kind of give you a way to understand it. Now, this is important because this idea that there is perfectionism out there, that there is one standard that is perfect and everything down here is imperfect and we're trying to reach up to that is embedded throughout the New Testament. And I think this causes a lot of, some of, maybe not a lot of, but some of the neuroses that we have, particularly if you have some form of OCD or perfectionism or things like that. And religion cause, uh, can create that stuff. You may not have been a perfectionist until you converted to Christianity or you may not have had OCD until you started believing in a God that was obsessively uh, concerned about every minutia of your life and filtering it through a lens of what's perfect, what's ideal. And so, again, there's this idea that there's this ideal in this other realm that we are to strive for. So this is where the concept of <clears throat> the person in Christ being seated in heavenly places That's the perfect you. That's the higher you. That's the better you (laughs) that this one is striving to conform to. So, again, you sort of have this kind of escapism that we seem to have as human beings embedded into this. But I want you to think about the difference between getting rid of all beliefs and getting rid of all meaning in your life or Belief, thought, meaning is the expression of the divine that is in the Logos. And as those who are made in the image of God, now watch this, as those then who are made in the image of God who carry that divine spark within us, 
then our minds are participating in that process. It is our mind, it is our consciousness that gives us our godlike qualities and characteristics. So rather than trying to escape all mind and all belief and all meaning in order to experience the divine, from this perspective, what we're saying is you engage in the, in the divine most fully when you're involved with meaning, when you're involved with beliefs, when you're involved with ideas that have the power and the ability to produce the kind of changes that you want to see in yourself and that you want to see in the world. That, that it is the root and foundation, the root and foundation of everything that is and of our existence and of our circumstances is mind and consciousness and ideas. And so not trying to run from those things to experience the divine, but engaging and immersing yourself and saying, okay, now, now here's the thing because, because we are meaning making machines. You, you can't not do it. You can't not give meaning, just like this guy that's trying to say, throw away the beliefs and throw away your ideas and throw away your mind, and then you'll experience presence, is an idea and a belief. You you can't get around that, I don't think. If you can, challenge me, right? Like the idea that I have to detach from my mind in order to experience presence is an idea. It is a thought. It is, in fact, a belief. I believe that the only thing that exists is this present moment. That's a belief. But what if the only thing that exists isn't this present moment? What if the future, the substance of the future, the essence of the future in terms of ideas, what ideas do inventors have today, do developers have today that 10 years from now we're going to have? I mean, however many decades we have to go back before the Internet, those of us that are old enough to remember before the Internet, before Facebook, those things were existing in idea form. Somebody was working with that in the realm of ideas. So they were literally participating with a future that existed. It just didn't exist in shape yet. It existed in the Logos in form and idea and consciousness, right? But if we say, oh, escape all that, run away from all that, then all progress is going to stop. You, you do realize that. All progress is going to stop. If we say meaning-making and ideas and beliefs are, are, are negative and something that we need to let go of and free ourselves from and get rid of, all progress is going to stop. If we believe that if we try to participate in social change to improve the lives, not of ourselves, but of other human beings who are suffering, that's an idea. That's a concept. But if we believe that we're interfering with their karma, that's an idea that can prevent us from creating a better world. And all this stuff kind of gets stuffed in and spewed out and shot out in teachings that are not nuanced and, frankly, are not very well grounded in life experience. Or if it is grounded in life experience, again, it's grounded in the subjective experience of those of us teaching it and someone else's subjective experience may be 100% entirely different than mine and if I try to push my subjective experiences the knowledge I have from my subjective experiences on other people and say this is right this is the way to go instead of just offering ideas and that kind of thing but if I say this is how it is then what I'm doing is I'm literally 
trying to form that other person in my image. I want them to take on my mental clothing, my meanings, and I want to put them on them and conform them to that <clears throat> which I'm putting forth. Does that make sense? Uh, so, for example, I, I grew up relatively privileged. I mean, I've had problems in my life, and when I got started in my adult life, uh, my family was broke. But my family wasn't always broke. So I grew up with certain privileges. I grew up in a relatively healthy home. I mean, every home has shit that goes down in it, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, we weren't the Cleavers by any means or the Cosbys. But I didn't suffer a lot of traumas. I've never been sexually abused. I've never been molested. I've never been really Beaten. I mean, yeah, sure. Spanked, hit, smacked, kicked, hair pulled, that kind of stuff went on with my dad in the house, but never to the point that I was injured. So I've never been physically abused to the point of injury. I've never been sexually abused or molested. I didn't grow up without privilege. I never had to worry about where my next meal was coming from. I've never been homeless. I've never had to experience the kind of prejudice and racism that people of color in our country have had to experience. So that creates a lot of limitations within the realm of my own experiences, right? Within the realm of my own subjective experiences. So what might work for me or what I might talk about may be totally different and not applicable at all and not fit for a person at all who's experienced these other things, right? So I may sit there and talk about how forgiveness is the pathway out of suffering and trauma I may talk about oneness, and if it's not nuanced, the person who's been traumatized by these things, the person who's experienced these things, how does that fit and how does that work for them in their lives? I mean, trauma does something to the brain. Uh, when, When you experience a trauma, think about it this way. Think about your brain having an experience digestive system. If I were to ask you, tell me what you had for breakfast March 5th, 2015. I doubt very many of you could tell me, if anybody. If I were to ask you, what shirt were you wearing three weeks ago today? I doubt unless it was a special event or occasion, I doubt you could just conjure up which piece of clothing you chose to put on because most of our experiences are mundane. And so you have mechanisms in your brain that eliminate those experiences. You can think about it, think about it as a digestive system, or you can think about it as a massive filing place. And you can imagine, if you will, with me as a metaphor, that there's guys in there, Like in the movie Inside Out, there's little cartoon characters in there. They're sorting through all these experiences that you're having, like pieces of paper. 
and they have filing cabinets and they have a shredder. And so most of our mundane memories driving to work, um, what car did you pass? How many cars did you pass on the way to work? That kind of stuff. You're having those experiences. They come into the brain and the brain does not store them. They say, oh, that doesn't matter. It's not important. It's not significant. Or here's the key. It doesn't have any meaning. So it goes in the shredder. Shred. 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 Now, if I were to ask you about something that had real meaning in your life, uh, tell me about your favorite memory. Growing up, some of my favorite memories growing up was visiting my grandparents. My grandparents had a dairy farm and a ranch, and I used to just love to go out there, and I used to love the milk that I would drink because it would be like straight out of the cow, right? And it just tastes different. And uh, I loved the smell of my grandma's house. Uh, she would use Dove soap a lot, so whenever I use Dove soap, I'm taken back to those memories. So those had a lot of meaning and significance for me. So those go in the files, right? So when I was having an experience at grandma's, they might take that experience, open up the file, filing cabinet that they want to remember and stick it in. <laughs> Say, okay, we want to remember that. Or if you want to use the digestive system, uh, analogy and metaphor, this is fuel for you. This is important. These are nutrients that you need. We're going to file it here. This other stuff, this is waste and it's going to go. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to eliminate it. <clears throat> and that's that's how it works. So your meaning determines your memories. That's why you can't not do it. But now, suppose you have a very traumatic event. You have what we call a shock trauma. You're molested. You're raped. You're beaten severely. Um, <clears throat> you have an accident or a fall that injures you. Uh, my son got bit by a dog. Um, got attacked and bit by a dog a while back. And that created a lot of social anxiety for him because of the setting he was in. And here's what happens with trauma. These guys back there, they get a file and they say, oh, my God, we don't know what to do with this. We don't know where to put this. This doesn't fit in any of the files that we have here. Uh, this is too emotionally significant to go in the shredder. So it just kind of hangs out there which is why you have flashbacks, which is why you have nightmares, which is why you have emotional pain. It's why you have anxiety. Now, there's a little tiny part of your brain called the amygdala, no bigger than the brain of a pigeon. In fact, amygdala means almond, so it's the size of an almond. So a neural circuitry the size of an almond, whose basic job it is, is to activate your fight-or-flight mechanisms, your stress responses. And scan the world, other parts of your brain that are scanning the world for similarities to alert you to. So we've got this traumatic event. Since we don't know what to do with this. We don't know where to put this. We don't know where to file this. We can't shred it. It's too important. We don't ever want it to happen again. So then everything goes on high alert and you're looking for similarities, but you're doing it in a very, the brain's doing it in a very uh, unsophisticated manner. <clears throat> So for my son, he got attacked by a dog. He didn't become afraid of dogs because he's got a lot of meaningful memories with dogs. He got attacked by a dog at a friend's house. So that manifested some social anxiety for him that he's having to work through as it relates to trauma because, oh, when there's people, there's danger. That's about how sophisticated those things are. Now, if I tell my kid, oh, just forgive the dog, 
Okay. All right. I forgive the dog. Forgive the people whose house you were at. Okay. I, I forgive them. But the brain still is like, because the concept of forgiveness is up here. And so sometimes we're forgiving things that are relatively easy to file. And something happens and that thing gets filed. But then we come along people that have these chunks of information. Or you think about the digestive system again, like a rock in your stomach that won't digest, a memory in the brain that won't digest from won't process. Well, just forgive them. That'll make you better. But truth is, reality is, that doesn't help the process in the brain at all. It doesn't help the pain at all. Now, there's something called complex trauma. Complex trauma. So shock trauma is one event. Bit by dog. Complex trauma happens to a person who is experiencing horrible things every day, every week, every month, and they don't know how to escape or they can't get out. This is why war is so bad. Because war is the worst of both. Because you have the complex trauma of the battlefield. The contract, I'm sorry, you have the shock trauma of the battlefield. You have the shock trauma of killing people, whatever. And you can't leave. You'd be a deserter. You'd go, hey, well, so you have to get up the next day and face it again. Get up the next day and face it again. So you have complex trauma and shock trauma, the worst of both worlds put together. But maybe somebody grew up in a home where they were repeatedly abused. Maybe somebody was repeatedly bullied at a school that they had to continually go to. Maybe somebody was a victim of incest in their home or their family or with a babysitter, and every time the babysitter came over. And listen, I, I'm going to have to put a a warning label on this because just talking about this stuff can trigger trauma in people, and that's not my goal. Um, like I said, I'm just kind of word vomiting today, so I need to put a trigger warning on this because um, I don't want to trigger anybody's trauma. See, that's what happens, just talking about it. Boom, that thing can fire up. So I just want to tell you that my subjective world, very, very different than the subjective world of somebody who maybe dealt with complex trauma. And if I start giving them these laws and I start virtue signaling, you need to forgive. You're all one. It's just in your mind. You're creating your own suffering. Those all sound great and spiritual and wonderful, and they completely contradict the way your brain works. They completely contradict neuroscience. Look, this is going to be hard for some people's egos to hear. Because for you, you found A Course in Miracles, you found Law One, you found uh, Eckhart Tolle, you found Jesus. various different healing methods that work for you. And I'm saying maybe that doesn't work for everybody. And I'm saying maybe we need to nuance the way we talk about some of these things. And I'm not telling you don't put that content out there. But it may be hard for your ego to hear because maybe it isn't the answer to everything in every situation for every person. 
And this is where we need to, I think, and I'm learning this. I'm learning this. I haven't done this perfectly by any means. But I want to grow as a human being. I want to grow as a teacher. I want to grow as a healer and a counselor. And so one of the things that I'm learning to do is I have to step back and say, I have a universe, a whole universe of consciousness. And when I look at you, I'm seeing another world. I'm seeing another star. I'm seeing another planet. And you have your whole world of consciousness and experiences, too. And then somehow, we got to figure out how to live in community. we got to figure out how to live together, right? And so if I'm talking to you, I mean, if I'm teaching, it's one thing. If I'm talking to you, and this is why I think it's so important, man, that you are working these things out in community at times because in in community where you don't have one voice that's the authority. You don't have one voice that's predominantly giving their ideas and meanings and stuff to you telling you this is how it has to be, right? Because I used to say this about evangelists, and I'll be done here in a minute. I used to say this about evangelists. If you're a traveling evangelist, traveling speaker, you go into a place, prophesy, lay hands on people, give messages, in worst, worst cases, give direction to a church, but then you're not doing the day-to-day life with the people that you're impacting and affecting. So you have no idea how that person is integrating that stuff into their real world and into their real life. And so maybe we just need to take a step back, number one, and have some humility. And allow space for different experiences. The Jews used to say, if you save a soul, you've saved a whole universe because there's a universe of consciousness behind that, a universe of meaning. And so what I'm trying to say is, just bottom line, what I'm trying to say, a lot of stuff that we teach or have been taught or being told is just the same sort of religious ideas, redressed and repackaged. Now, all of that to give us a spiritual bypass for life. All of that to give us a way to not engage and embrace our flu humanity, to somehow demonize our humanity, to somehow demonize one another, to create signs, to create an other and to somehow escape from this world that we find ourselves in. Maybe our growth, maybe our evolution comes from not trying to deny the things that most make us human. And I would even argue in the case of the mind and beliefs and meaning, 
the things that make us most divine. And maybe healing happens when we are able to transform meaning. Remember, meaning governs memory. Shock trauma, one of the things shock does to you is, I don't know what this means. So one of the ways people heal from trauma is by the transformation, the discovery and the transformation of meaning in the midst of trauma. Makes me think, I, oh, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Um, Jewish guy that was in a Nazi camp wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Victor Franklin. You know, existing in a Nazi camp, shock trauma, complex trauma, all going on at the same time. And he said the way he got through that and the way he experienced healing was through the power of meaning. Because, see, it's in the power of meaning, beliefs and ideas, that we find the divine power that allows us to transform situations, that allows us to heal situations, that allows us to create a life worth living in. Perhaps meaning is not concrete. Perhaps meaning is very flexible, multifaceted. And maybe part of your divine and my divine privilege is that we get to name what's in our environment, like Adam did. And whatever we name it, it becomes. Whatever meaning we give to situations we go through. And sometimes transforming that meaning, sometimes transforming that healing can't happen in a moment. Can't happen by following something external to you. Sometimes you just have to go inside and work through this stuff and process this stuff and feel this stuff, work this stuff out. On your own. So that's my offering today. Uh, hope it uh, was helpful and beneficial to somebody out there. Again, I'll go back and read the comments. Love to hear your thoughts on this stuff. Uh, and um, next week is Thanksgiving. I'm going to take the week off, so I won't have a live video next Sunday. Contemplating taking December off, but I'm not sure uh, what I'm going to do yet there. Uh, but I want to be refreshed, renewed, and ready to just really kick off uh, the new year was some things here locally that I want to do and also um, some things uh, back on my YouTube channel. I want to get back on my YouTube channel and do some stuff like that. I'm finding it harder and harder to stay on Facebook, Twitter, and that kind of stuff because it's just very toxic um, for me. Uh, and so that's where I'm at. So anyway, love you guys. Thanks for watching. And uh, I will see you not next week. Definitely the week after. So that's the first week in December, so I won't be taking the full, the full time off. All right, love you guys. Bless you.